0: So I'm delighted today that we are speaking to Rob Jarvis, and Rob is head of risk at Tokyo Marine Kiln, formerly of this parish, worked for LCP. We had a, a few very enjoyable years working together, Rob. Rob, you are someone that I've always seen as being sort of a bit of a renaissance actuary, so somebody who was more than just an actuary, and it, it made a lot of sense when you moved into risk management. And I've kind of, you know, through our various conversations at LCP CRO Roundtable, you often tend to be one of those people who is placing risk management in the broader business context, in the context of strategy, the context of how to make an insurer more successful. And so, you know, today we're going to look at some of the big questions in risk management, as well as the role that risk management is playing in the insurance market and where that might go in the future. So welcome, Rob.
1: Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market.
0: I'm Charles Cronier
1: and I'm Jessica Clark. and Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP.
0: We'd love to hear from you so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website.
1: Let's kick off with this week's episode.
0: It's great to have an opportunity to sort of talk about the evolution of the risk function. And by evolution, I'm, I'm mainly thinking about where it might evolve in the future. But of course, it's probably worth talking a little bit about how we got to where we are today, how it's evolved over the last 10 years, because that might have give us some clues as to what's coming next. I feel like the last couple of years, with all the sort of mega risks that have come to the fore, has given the risk function an opportunity to really shine, but also a lot of insurers have been doing quite well, making good profits, rates have been hard. And in those situations, perhaps, you know, I'm thinking the risk function maybe becomes a bit less popular, especially if they're sort of suggesting that the business puts the foot on the brake when they put want to put the foot on the gas. And so, you know, we could be at an interesting junction now for the role of the risk function. I'm just keen to explore that with you. And I know you've been right at the heart of the development of the risk function. You've been within your firm, one of the people who sort of driven forward and increased the influence of the risk function. So really looking forward to our chat today.
2: Let's start with the golden golden age of the risk manager. So uh, it's a phrase. I can't remember who I stole that from, but I stole it from somebody. It's the golden age of the risk manager at the minute, because we had you know, years and years. At the start of my career, I remember talking to people about pandemic scenarios. This was as I forget whether it was SARS or MERS or bird flu or swine flu or but one of those kind of near-miss type scenarios. And you sit and talk to people about what happens if there's a there's a real you know, flu pandemic or something. And everybody says, well, you know, we just work from home for a little bit, you know, there'll be some accident health losses, there'll be some travel insurance losses, and that'll probably be it. Obviously, the last couple of years have proven that completely wrong, and I I can certainly say I've put some things in front of um, sort of risk committees and what have you that were, in hindsight, completely rubbish. (laughs) And then we've had a few other things. You know, most recently we've had things like the kind of conflict in, in Ukraine, where there's been a whole load of potential losses. I guess if you read the Insurance Insider around things like aviation war, which have come from places that you wouldn't quite expect, or in ways that you wouldn't quite expect, or potentially could come from places you wouldn't quite expect. And there have been quite a few of those sorts of incidents over the last five or six years where the event itself has perhaps been something that's been understood. It's been a thing that's been on risk registers or emerging risk registers for quite a while. But then the way the loss evolves out of it turns out to be completely different from what you expected.
1: Why do you think that has been the case that we have might have predicted the scenarios, you say the pandemic, but we've not, I don't think anyone's claiming that we should accurately have described exactly how That things have unfolded, but that we've not even considered a scenario that was either kind of like it or anywhere near as extreme. Potentially, because it feels like we're on that end of the spectrum. Kind of conversations we're having—it's not like we all thought it would be awful. And actually, it was a little bit better than it could have been. We were all probably, as you say, oh, I mean, even at the start of the pandemic, I think we'd all thought we'd be back after a few months. Which hindsight's a wonderful thing. Why do you think that is?
2: You tend to manage stuff that you kind of understand and agree with, so. You're not likely to get surprised by something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about and digging into, almost by definition. So the stuff that everybody thinks is possible, unless something's really gone wrong, you tend to manage it fairly well. So you know, thinking of something like silent cyber, for example, there's been lots and lots of effort going into you know making sure that we've got the right exclusions in place and the exposures are well understood, and so on and so on and so on. And now we look really silly if we end up having an enormous silent cyber scenario next week, and, and you can come back and beat me with that stick but <laughs> I, I think that's relatively less likely because there's been a lot of attention on it. And so it might not go exactly the way you planned, but you're probably not gonna get hopefully not going to get totally taken by surprise by it. Whereas the stuff that you kind of don't expect, you're maybe your unknown unknowns, are the ones that are gonna they're gonna hit you. I guess some of it is, is groupthink a bit. Everybody <laughs> says it's not a problem, so I won't worry about that. Some of it is probably around optimism or if you start to think about some of those things, you end up coming up with some unpleasant answers also you have to take some actions that aren't very comfortable and probably set you apart from from the rest of the market and that's hard but some of it is just that i was saying to somebody the other day i could probably come up with 500 one in 500 scenarios any any individual one of them you could tell me is utter rubbish um you know it's one in 500 i don't need to worry about that but if i come up with 500 of them i'm expecting one a year but which one is often the really important thing and that's
0: i think very hard to do so <laughs> Mm. I wanted to touch on that, actually, because it does feel like for the last you know few years, we're having something that feels like a real tail event every single year. And I'm starting to believe that that will continue. And, you know, it's a question of if we haven't got a general allowance for tail events built in to our planning, we're going to keep being blindsided when they happen.
2: It's difficult with this sort of general allowance, though. They're all so different. So if you put an allowance, uh, an amount of money aside for it, then that's fine and sensible. But it doesn't help you manage the issue. You still end up paying for it. And that's really not the – I don't think that should be the goal of a well-risk-managed organization as well. We, we know how much we're going to waste on all these silly things.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's actually about maybe, maybe enumerating a much wider library of adverse scenarios to the business.
2: I mean, that's certainly what we're, we're trying to do. We're doing a lot of work looking at some of these tail scenarios and there's a real interesting balance between getting right out into the tail and talking about stuff that's, you know, so, so unlikely that it's not worth thinking about, or it's so severe that actually you'd be thinking about bottled water and shotgun shells more than about worrying about your insurance losses.
0: Question for you then, Rob. Is it, what do you find the board's appetite is like for discussing these sorts of extreme events? And what are ways that you found helpful to open up those topics to them so that they can make appropriate decisions or kind of set the strategy in a way that's consistent with managing those risks?
2: Well, I mean, I, I guess I can only speak for our board, seeing as I don't, don't really see any others. Well, frankly, I haven't seen a huge amount of ours recently. But when we talk about these things, Often they're not so interested in the real detail of stuff. I mean, I I could sit and talk about the consequences of a limited nuclear strike in Ukraine to no end now. Not that I'm saying that's something I'm expecting to happen, but you know, that's something we have spent some time thinking about. I could spend half an hour talking about that. It's a really interesting topic. They're not interested in that sort of detail, and it's sometimes quite hard for those of us who are... I'm an actuary. You know that I, I, I'm an actuary. I like getting into the detail of things, talking about the numbers and the way we've carved estimates. They're obviously not interested in, in that stuff. They're interested in the, what are we going to do about it and the commercial implications of what you are going to do about it? And, and in some of these cases, it might have commercial implications. It's not just a case of tweaking something in a capital model. You're, you're talking about actually changing the way that you either underwrite something or reinsure something that comes with often some downside if you're going to manage these or some loss of upside perhaps.
1: With all the focus that the kind of with the events in recent years at the 1 in 200, is there a chance that we become a bit complacent with the kind of more day-to-day risks and we think, oh, we kind of manage these kind of risks okay, That we don't give them the attention that they probably deserve because we are focusing on these these bigger events potentially?
2: Yeah, it's definitely possible. People have got limited amounts of attention. And if you start shifting it somewhere else, it's definitely possible that things go wrong elsewhere. I'd like to think, I'd like to think, although I might be being slightly naive here, that, you know, if you've got your system set up in a way that works well and your framework's nice and you and I'm not talking just about risk management. I'm talking about, you know, your kind of business planning and portfolio management strategies as well. The things that actually manage a lot of these risks. If that's all working nicely, then it, it, you should be able to take your eye off for long enough to have some of these other conversations. Because you're not really taking your eye off. You're kind of and don't let me give you the impression that I'm spending, you know, ninety-five percent of my time thinking about really unlikely stuff. Like I still have a day job
0: and other things to do as well. And I'm sure that's true of all my colleagues. I'm thinking maybe the inflation spike that we're currently experiencing might fall into that category. It's by no means a distant tail risk when you you know, if you look at long term history, we've often had uh, inflation rates as high as we're experiencing now. So In a way, it should be more of a day-to-day risk. But I think because firms haven't had to manage it in a meaningful way for so long, I think it's fair to say it's not only the insurance market, even the investment markets keep underestimating the height and the duration of the spike. So maybe that's a good example of how a a more mundane risk is being probably poorly predicted, poorly managed.
2: Yeah, inflation risk, I think, has been a bit of a dirty secret for the well, the capital modeling community for a while because it's it's modeled multiplicatively so you calibrate it through all your history and you say inflations at, or interest rates are the same so interest rates are four percent and then you look at the chance of there being a 50 percent increase or decrease and then you apply that to whatever you're at at the minute and that works nicely when you're at two three four five percent when you're at half a percent or nothing you end up with a very tightened distribution and actually those are the times i think logically when you'd expect there to be almost more because you expect there to be a a certain amount of of inflation and things change so and that that i think has been one of those things that's been on i think people have known that that's been there for a while and i think people have sort of sat and thought well that's probably not enough of an issue for me to need to worry about compared to you know all these other things that are much more burning problems inflation's been at you know close to zero or 1% for a long time. and Interest rates have been at close to zero or 1% for a long time. We'll we'll worry about that later. And here we are. And I think also sometimes when you get a model that's like that, and you kind of know there's a problem with it, but you still end up being anchored to the fact that you've got a model that tells you there isn't any inflation risk. So it is is an interesting one to think through. There's a bit of a a kind of negative spiral there. The model tells you it's nothing, so you think it's nothing. So the model tells you it's nothing, and you kind of end up perpetuating that. And the markets are an interesting one as well, because I think people are listening to what the central banks are saying. And the central banks, I think, have an incentive to try and understate future inflation risk, because that's the best way of, of managing it is to tell people it's not happening. So people don't put their prices up. And so I, I wonder if there's a, I wonder if there's another kind of psychological thing that's going on there or a bit of game theory or something there are people who spend a lot more time thinking about these things than i do so i'd like to think that all those smart quants at banks are not being taken in like that but (laughs) who knows
1: yeah that was something we we talked about last week with ed in the kind of inflation episode that kind of loop in theory in terms of, of how one influences the other i guess i just wanted to ask do you think that the the tools that risk function has for kind of managing these kind of day-to-day risks? You said, you know, almost like they kind of happen in the background. Do you think they're the kind of right tools for the job? Or do you think we see them kind of growing and developing over time? Are they kind of, you know, outdated or or are they, they working as intended?
2: I'd like to think we don't do things that are totally useless. You know, they've all got their benefits and they've all got their place. I think I'd be in trouble if I go back to work tomorrow this afternoon having sat here and told you that i'm you know doing a whole bunch of stuff that's a total waste of time (laughs) i think some things don't work or aren't as useful for the reasons that textbooks tell you they're useful and so i'm thinking things like the risk register and risk and control self-assessments personally find that there's there's some value in having a long list of all of the things that could go wrong and there's definitely some value in having a list of all the controls that are associated with those there's more limited value in asking people to score them qualitatively. There is some use in that, but actually the scores themselves and so if you if you look at a textbook that you know'll often say, "Well, the scores are the useful bit of information because you can go and do modeling with that and you can look at you know what your big risks are and what your small risks are, and you can look at how well the controls are working now actually people are really bad at estimating stuff like this, like they are really bad at it and you can challenge as much as you like, but we're still people as well, and we're still really bad at estimating all of these things. For me, what's actually most useful for those is that it structures the structure of a conversation when you go and have one of these risk assessment meetings, it gives you a nice list of things to talk about and prompts. But the most useful thing is when people tell you things have changed. So I'm not necessarily interested in whether you think this is a four out of five risk or a, a, you know, a one in 10 or a one in 20 or a one in 30. But if you tell me that it's gone from a one in 10 to a one in 20, something's changed and there's something there that we need to dig into and understand. Do the controls that we've got and the ways that we're managing that risk need to change to capture whatever it is that's changed. So it's the change, I think, in those things that's often most, most useful, to give you an example.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting point that you've touched on there, which is the conversations that you have about risks. And I suppose something that I've heard from a number of risk managers is that they felt that during the lockdowns and with people working from home, the ability to have those informal conversations was really impaired. And so they were really looking forward to sort of walking the floors a bit more, having those water cooler conversations that turn into important discussions. How true have you found that to be in your context?
2: All of the best conversations about risk management happen in kitchens and pubs. (laughs) Uh, i genuinely genuinely believe that which is not one of those things i like to admit as publicly as perhaps i'm doing now because then people start to worry about it and then they don't, they don't tell you all <laughs> of that good stuff in the kitchens and the pubs because they feel like they're being used so it is a bit of a balance to this uh, i think the right way of putting it is that, uh, that through lockdowns i didn't feel like i was significantly worse at my job but as soon as i got back into the office and started talking to people i realized that there was a whole bunch of stuff that was going on that i hadn't heard about so I definitely, definitely missed it. Definitely missed it. And as a consequence, you know, I try and vary the days that I'm coming into the office so that everybody's got their own habits, right? And so if you want to see everybody, you have to vary your own habits to match the fact that everybody you're working with has got different habits. And I try and make sure that I spend, you know, a bit of time every day just wandering around talking to people. And so my team probably think I'm a total waster because they see me wandering around talking to people. But I think it's important.
1: Do you think the fact that You just said some of the most beneficial conversations you can have can be in the kitchen or in a pub. Is that just because people are more relaxed? People are kind of, you know, not off guard. They're not like, you know, checking for their next meeting. Is it because they're, you know, like just generally, because I feel like we've heard that a few times that that kind of those water cooler conversations are happening. What is it about that moment that, that we can't recreate virtually?
2: In a risk function, you're in a really privileged place of being one of the few people that actually sees almost everything that goes on in a company. And I think one of the hallmarks of a really good risk team is joining dots. So it's not, it's not necessarily, Oh, here's a risk. We should put a control in place. It's actually just being a little bit, Oh, you should go and have a chat with these people because they're doing this thing that, you know, we'll have an impact on that. Do you know what I mean? And so sometimes it's actually the stuff that it's the stuff that people don't think to tell you that's actually the most useful. And I think that's why it comes up in water coolers and, and in pubs because it's the oh what are you up to at the minute what's keeping you busy why do you look so tired type conversations that are often as helpful as the really structured ones now you can get all of that stuff out of people in a structured meeting it takes i think a bit of skill and a bit of practice and a good relationship with people to bring that out in a more formal meeting but it it can be done and certainly i mean i found through through lockdown i've put a whole load of like 15 minute catch-ups with people every couple of weeks just so that you can have that hi how are you what's going on but as soon as you start diarizing that stuff it just takes up forever and it does lose some of that spark that you get when you're in a a kitchen or a pub so it it can be done it's just it's harder and you have to make more of an effort
0: to do it i think absolutely now i want to sort of go right to the heart of the question that was on my mind when we started discussing this podcast and it, it's it's about the way that the risk function has gained a, a massively increased influence over the last 10 years and to me that looks like very good news you know it's gone from perhaps a you know at one point a glorified compliance function to something where you really are joining the dots to what extent have we now plateaued or to what extent do you think that influence will increase And perhaps what are some of the risks? Could it even go the other direction, especially in hard markets when times are good? Let's start with why it's changed from that sort of regulatory tick box to perhaps
2: having a little bit more influence. To be honest, I can't really really say why that's happened. We interviewed somebody a little while ago who summed it up really nicely for me. The type of people that end up in risk management jobs are people who are professionally nosy, (laughs) 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 which... I thought it was a really nice summary and I, I think that's probably where it comes well, part of where it comes from is you've got a group of people who are attracted to this sort of job because they're kind of interested in everything and people like that tend not to be very happy just doing regulatory tick boxy type stuff they tend to want to do something interesting and so I suspect some of it just is down to the type of people who like to do this kind of work you've also got quite a lot of quite bright people who come into to this space of work they tend to come from well I don't want to generalize, actually, because there's all sorts of people working in risk teams, but there are quite a few people with sort of highly qualified backgrounds, actuaries, accountants, you know, auditors, people who are reasonably bright. And so if you've got bright, inquisitive people who start kind of asking about stuff, they'll inevitably come up with some ideas for things. Some of those will be useful. Some of those will stick. As I say, I think some of it is that you're also in a fairly privileged position. There aren't many teams that get to see get to see everything. And I think that helps as well. Like there are quite a few books out there about the power of kind of combining ideas and ways of thinking. And I think on a sort of more mundane and insurancy level, that's something that can happen in a risk team if you encourage it and let it happen because you see all sorts of stuff. Some of it, I think as well, is a recognition that actually sometimes the best way to manage a risk is to be involved in things a little bit earlier on in the process. So getting into things like planning and strategy is actually the best way of managing a risk rather than kind of trying to deal with it after it's happened and so you start off with this position of if i need to do my job properly i need to be involved in some of this other stuff and then if i'm going to be involved in some of this other stuff i need to show that i'm adding a bit of value and hopefully if you do a good job of that people find it useful and it kind of grows from there so i guess that's that's my two cents on why some of that's happened i don't know that it's happened everywhere and i don't know that it has to happen there are almost certainly companies out there who've got risk management teams who are a little bit more towards that regulatory end of the spectrum. And all of this other good stuff is being done by other people who are also perfectly well qualified to do it. So I think there's, there are a wide range of nice ways of doing these things.
0: And this way that we talked about probably isn't the only way. So related to that, a question I've been wondering about is, are the people on the ground, people not in the risk management function, but within the underwriting teams, finance teams, claims team are they managing risk better and more proactively than they were 10 years ago because of the work that the risk function has done?
1: I think for listeners, just to note that Rob had a really good smile on his face just then in response to that question.
0: Probably not for the reasons
2: that you think I have either. (laughs) It's a really interesting question, and it's a conversation I had with somebody on our board, which was you know, how do you quantify the impact of some of these teams, say risk management or exposure management or somebody doing portfolio management how do you quantify the impact that you've had and say look, this is the benefit that we bring it's a really hard thing to do and i think that question kind of cuts to the cuts to the quick of it really doesn't it because that that would absolutely be the thing that you want to happen i think the answer is yes i honestly think the answer is yes whether that's because of work that the risk management team or the internal audit team has done i'm a little bit hesitant to take credit for that but uh, <laughs> but i think the answer is yes i think the more you can give people a framework to work in and a way of structuring things, the more it becomes part of the day job. You'll always get people that don't buy into that way of doing things, and particularly in a market that's as slow to change as the one I think we're in. You get people who say, well, it's worked fine for 30 years and it doesn't need to change. And, and sometimes that's actually true. You know, I think you, you ignore that at your peril sometimes. The thing that makes the biggest difference, actually, and I suspect this is likely to be controversial, so for anyone that's listening who disagrees with me, feel free to buy us a beer and we'll go and have a chat about it. The thing that makes the biggest difference is the sort of strategy level stuff. I think generally people, if you've got sensible people who are good at their jobs, they will manage their own risks reasonably well. And when you go and talk to an underwriter, you know they will talk to you about the reinsurance that they buy and why they buy it, and they'll talk to you about how they manage their portfolio to manage certain risks and the exclusions that they use to to get things out the book. Have you? And they're generally fairly good at that. The thing that's made the difference over the ten years is, isn't people on their own at their desks managing their own risks. It's the thinking a little bit more holistically about what happens with that thing and that thing when we put them together. And I do think that that being something that Kind of management teams and boards are thinking about more is the thing that really adds the value. But like I said, I suspect that might be a controversial opinion.
0: So, well, no. <laughs> I think it's a great point to finish on. Well, Rob, that's been really fun talking about the subject with you. And I think there's probably still lots of interesting stuff to come in the journey of the risk function and its role in the business. We normally end on a couple of fun questions. So, the first is, what would be your dream job if you couldn't work in financial services? really depends
2: on how much money i've got so if i win the lottery tomorrow and I, I don't have to worry about money i'm going to open a little coffee shop it's going to be a small coffee shop it's going to have about five seats in it. it's not really going to be big enough to encourage anyone to spend any time in it and i'm going to sit there drinking coffee and reading a newspaper and pretending to run a coffee shop <laughs> maybe maybe my friends will come in for a, for a half hour chat every now and again you know have a few regulars but i won't really be doing any work
1: I think that coffee shop sounds lovely. (laughs) That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode.
0: This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freeguard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
1: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.